0: Well, good day, everybody. Welcome to the Lifetime Trainer Talks podcast. And I have the one and only Mr. Brent Bookbush back. And I I can't wait to talk about today's episode because so many people in our world suffer from low back pain. And I see so many people with the best intentions, you know, out on the floor, working out, doing a ton of stuff to try to help themselves. And Sometimes it's not. So uh, let's cut through the chase and we're going to dive right into kind of some mechanisms, some good exercises, some stuff you might want to stay away from. So uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Brent Brookbush.
1: Somebody did give me a doctor. I, didn't get through that. So, uh, I am a doctor. I don't expect to be called doctor. Um, yeah, man, it's really good to be back. So um, I'm I'm excited about this topic. This yeah. is an interesting topic. I think I'll have some surprising answers for people too, especially with my you know, my background being both a trainer and a physical therapist. And then, of course, you guys know I do all of this, like, these comprehensive lit reviews. Mm-hmm. So once you get into the research, the you have the practice, and then you have kind of like what you hear in the theory, and then you have the reality of the situation. And those things don't always, like, match up as neatly as you would think they would.
0: And and, and it's, it's great because you know i even prior to the episode threw some things at you that you know i was reading from years back and just different things and you're like uh yeah that's mm-mm, no <laughs> that's not really true <laughs> so but well let's jump into it let's let's start with the the fundamentals here and you know there's a lot of different mechanisms of of back pain and you know specifically low back pain and i'd love for you to just start with the fundamentals of, you know, there's things like disc herniations and subluxations and facet syndrome. Would you mind just, let's start right there and talk about what are those things and, you know, are those, you know, how big issues are those, you know, as, as time goes on or in the beginning?
1: Yeah. So, uh, this is one of those things where it's like, doesn't matter. Um, and I know that sounds strange because people, like oh herniated disc versus whether it's a facet or that's got to change what what are we actually trying to change right so if we're trying to come up with a diagnosis if we're trying to come up with an explanation for pain the the more important thing for us is what is that actually going to do to how we intervene right Mm -hmm. what intervention plan what sort of treatment plan do we give and the truth of the matter is, is we're not very good at differentiating where pain comes from when we start getting on that micro level of, well, is it pain that's being generated from nociception at, at a set joints, or is it something to do with an injured disc, or is that that herniated, that bulging disc rubbing up against a nerve, or is it overactivity and spasm of muscles and those could, can cause nociception, right? And you get into all of this. And all of this stuff is in like a tiny little space. And it's like, can we really tell which of these things is true? Or if all of these things are true all at once, which is probably more often the case anyway, right? We have, you know, an HMP, which is causing changes in muscle activity, which is causing the facet joint to stiffen up, which is causing, right? Like, which is like somehow compressing on nerves and like all of this stuff is related. And from a, from a, academic standpoint, this is all very interesting. Maybe from a surgical standpoint, this could be important because obviously you can place the scalpel on different tissues, right? Once you mm-hmm. open somebody up, but from a rehab standpoint, from a exercise standpoint, from a how, what we do in the gym or clinic, it probably doesn't matter all that much.
0: So, but are there any, I guess, contraindicated things Like if somebody has a herniation, you know, what should you potentially stay away from? And we'll get into exercise and different things, but just generally speaking, if, if somebody has, you know, herniation, you know, how big a deal is it? Because, you know, sometimes people get freaked out when they go, my doc said, I need herniation and I got to, you know, get it cut out and I got to get a, you know, all these things. And from what I've heard, and I'd love your, your, your response to this is that almost you know, whatever percent, 50, 60% of the population has herniations, but they're asymptomatic. And, and again, I don't know the percentage, but I've heard a pretty high percent.
1: So you were asking like how serious is a herniated nucleus palposis versus a nerve root compression versus a facet joint issue. And the truth of the matter is, and this I should have said at that beginning rant is we're not very good at differentiating between those three things, with our diagnostic orthopedic tests. So when somebody gets a diagnosis and it comes to me and it's like, doctor says this person has an HMP, which is the technical acronym for a herniation, right? Herniated nucleus pulposus, right? Herniation. So somebody comes in and they're like, my doctor says I have a herniation. I don't really care. Uh, because the truth of the matter is, is like he has no better way of differentiating between our herniation or a nerve root compression than I do. Right. We all use kind of the same special tests. And when it comes to differentiation, we're just not that good at good at differentiating those things that are very close together.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So let's start there. Realize that if you have low back pain, you have low back pain. And it's probably not that serious regardless of what it's been labeled. Right. And we'll talk about what makes low back pain serious here in a second. Yeah. Now. How serious is low back pain? Well, I can tell you that the average low back pain is gone within three to six months, right? So that's something to think about. And I tell clients this all the time, hey, this is going to suck and it's going to suck for a little while, but you're going to get better, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes we get lucky and things disappear really, really fast. Um, And obviously, if you're a really good physical therapist, you're going to increase or decrease the length of recovery, you'll get back to 100% symptom free faster, or you'll decrease symptoms significantly faster. So that if somebody doesn't get 100% better in less time, maybe they get 80% better really quick, and then they have a slow tail off for that last 20% as their tissues heal for whatever facet, nerve, herniated disc, muscle damage that they happen to do. Mm-hmm. Right Now, when does low back pain get really serious? And this well, is when but,
0: I say, I'm sorry to, before we get dive into that though, and in, in there is a good portion of the population that I've heard that has herniations, but are completely asymptomatic from, from a pain standpoint. Is that almost, correct?
1: Almost everybody. Yeah. That's what I thought. Right. So that's, that's, we've done research or not me, not me personally, yeah. enough, I'm pushing yeah. but there is research out there um, that shows that like they've done taken a hundred people. And just throw them in an MRI. And like everybody has some level of herniation somewhere. Mm. Most of them totally asymptomatic. And then it gets even a little sketchier. When you look at low back pain individuals, you'll get this like mix of like herniations, not herniations. And then in the herniation group, not all of the herniations found will match the symptoms that have been seen in the in the person's evaluation and guys this isn't just like a subjective thing this is like if somebody has nerve pain running down their leg and we know that there's pain along a certain part of the leg we can trace that to a certain nerve and a certain segment of the spine and the herniation will be like two segments above that right like yeah so it doesn't match their symptoms don't necessarily match this herniation that's on the mri um so yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where when it comes to low back pain and we we try to like get really good with our labels of like HMP or uh, like I said, nerve root compression or muscle or sprained ligament, whatever, we're not very good at differentiating these things because the truth of the matter is, is pain is much more complicated than people think it is. And our ability to... Um, Perceive where pain comes from is actually way, way, way less accurate than you would think. As the human body, (laughs) I'm I'm laughing.
0: I'm laughing because i so often, oh yeah, I hurt my, you know, my QL, or I I just I hurt my sartorius. Like how how do you, how do you know? (laughs) And and so again, there's tests, but it's it's. I mean,
1: people. I can't tell you as a physical therapist how many times where I buff people come in and they're like, I have low back pain, I have low back pain, I have low back pain. Yes. And so I'm doing like some tests to see, okay, what segment can I press on to like yeah. find their symptoms, What's right? I'm trying to reproduce their symptoms so I can retest it. And by the time I end up reproducing their symptoms, I'm on their backside. I'm like, you don't have low back pain. You have butt pain.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and they think they have low back pain because that's where the that's yeah, where they're perceiving it. it. But when you actually like touch, maybe it's like closer down. When I say butt pain, I'm actually talking about like SI joint, right? Like I yeah. push down on their SI joint, even though they might be thinking they're feeling it higher.
0: Yeah.
1: We're not as accurate as we think we are. And I think one thing I've talked about a little bit when I teach logic, statistics, research, which you know I love to get into. Yeah. Right? Like the, the whole scientific method is we have to be careful not to go so far into detail that we become less accurate in the process. That's powerful. Yeah, you, know, you get what I'm saying? Like yep. sometimes all you can do is label something as low back dysfunction. And that's as accurate as you can get. Because as soon as you start trying to go, oh, it's low back pain coming from, well, you don't know this area over here. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you go grabbing for this, you actually decrease in accuracy. That is something we have to keep in mind. And this also gets into like information science. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, another rant for another day. Well,
0: and, and so you were, before I cut you off, um, you were talking about how, when does it become an issue? You know, because then there's herniation that turns oh, to yeah. rupture and, you know, and, and things like that.
1: Let's stay away from it. I mean, you can stay away from that for now. Yeah. There's two major scenarios where I go, okay, you need to see somebody And there's a couple scenarios where we go, okay, not only do you need to see somebody, you need to go to the emergency room. If you have sensation loss, especially for long periods of time. So sometimes we'll get some numbing for a short period of time. It'll feel like something went to sleep. Like, uh, you can get neck pain and like your pinky will go to sleep for a few minutes. Okay. That's probably okay. You need to go see a physical therapist and get that treated. But probably okay if all of a sudden you're the, the the outside of your hand goes numb and it's been numb for like 24 48 hours you definitely need to like go and see somebody because it's not that that's life-threatening but it is one of those things where the longer you go the less likely you are to get your sensation back and yeah. that can become a serious problem mm-hmm. now of course things get really really serious when we lose motor function so we have a a serious decrease in strength right Yep. Like all of a sudden somebody can't like pick up their foot, right? Dorsiflex. All of a sudden somebody can't like walk upstairs with their right leg. They have to like go left, up, then right, left, up, then right, next to left, right? Like they can't actually make that next step. But Now all of a sudden we go, okay, this is serious. And that's where all of a sudden you go from physical therapy often to surgical interventions because if they don't decompress the nerve. If they don't find a way to get your sensation of motor function back, the longer you go without having that, the less likely you are to get that back. Got it. Outside of those two scenarios, we're not really talking about most low back pain it sucks. It hurts, but it's not that serious. Got it. There are a couple of emergent problems, right? Like you lose sexual function, you lose bowel and bladder. Um, like I said, you lose significant motor function. Um, you start losing sensation that does not come back. Uh, those, those are all emergent things that that maybe you should go to the emergency room for. Um, Uh again, you need like surgery, like now, (laughs) you know, for, I'm saying these things and I know everybody's going, Oh my God, they don't happen that often. Yeah. Um, when you look at the grand scheme of all low back pain, Like for things to get that serious, usually somebody has had low back pain for a long time that they haven't gotten treated. Yeah. If you're just starting to have low back pain, you're having some chronic low back pain that's never affected motor or sensory, you just need to get in and take care.
0: Got it. Well, so, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, when that back pain, that acute pain comes in and it puts you into kind of that, I can't bend up, I'm kind of scrunched over and to the left. Can you explain a little bit about what's, you know, and I know that's every person might be different, but why is it that the body kind of goes into those kind of positions and you can't get upright? You know, do you have some general reasoning behind what happens there and the muscles go into some pretty tight spasm?
1: Yeah, we can hypothesize and chances are people are not that different from each other, Mm -hmm. but um, we don't have all the answers here. It gets a little complicated, right? So you injure some tissues. Whatever tissue you happen to injure, you can imagine your body is probably going to try to do something to compensate for that tissue injury and maybe take you into a position that puts less stress on those tissues. That's one potential theory right? So if you strain something really, really bad, let's say you have a grade two strain or some ligament between two lumbar vertebrae, maybe your body tries to put you into a position that doesn't pull on those, those, that ligament so that you're out of that pain or out of that uh, potential for increased tissue injury beyond, beyond that. The other thing to think about is as soon as you go into pain, you set off, this is more complicated, sets off a bunch of reflexive changes In muscle activity, sensory reception, uh, potentially joint stiffness, all of these things are tied to reflexes with pain. So you'll get pain, you'll injure some tissues, and immediately the muscles around it start going into some overactivity.
0: And and that's almost a protective mechanism, correct?
1: Right. Yeah, Yeah, these two things that I'm talking about, this hypothesis of getting away from the tissue injury or working around the tissue injury, and then all of these reflexive things are obviously related. Unfortunately, they don't always match because sometimes the compensation pattern can actually put more stress on these tissues and eventually will, which is why rehab becomes so important, right? You got to find a way to put everything back into balance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have all these reflexive changes where certain things go, certain muscles go into overactivity. They spasm to like clamp down and, and keep you from moving. Well, that causes other reflexive changes that causes other muscles to completely shut down, right? Well, not completely shut down, yeah. Turned down. Yeah. then that might change joint stiffness in certain joints joints might get stuck. And then, you know, you have changes in just the nerves themselves start becoming more sensitive, right? So that you are more aware of that area. So hopefully you don't like a lot of this little stuff happens all all at once.
0: So, so somebody comes in to the club, you know, I've got a client and they come in and they're, they're kind of hunched over and they have that, you know, Is it send them away? Is are there things that 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 you you could potentially?
1: I mean, if they're if they're hunched over like this and they can't straighten out, yeah, I wouldn't say (laughs) to go to PT or something. Yeah, they shouldn't really be in the gym. Um, I mean, I guess as individuals get older and adopt. We're not talking about just bad posture here,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah, No, 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 no. No, That that we'll get into next.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You can let let those people do their thing. Yeah. And let's hope that today is not the day that things fall apart. But uh, you know, somebody comes in like side bent and they can't totally straighten out from low back pain. Like that person probably should not be working out that day. Yeah. Um. You know, they need to. They need. Well,
0: but what I'm getting at is some some people will come in and they'll they'll throw a Theragun or they'll they'll you know they'll try to massage it out if maybe they know, you know, and, and those are, you know, risks, you know, that, that you take, especially if there's not a training that you've gone through or an effective training, I should say uh, that you've gone through.
1: Yeah. I mean, this gets into that weird, we're kind of stepping into this weird area where like, where do where, what's the line between personal trainers and physical therapists mm-hmm. and, or, and when I say physical therapists, I'm sorry, I'm being Profession centric for all of my other colleagues out there, yeah. athletic trainers, physical therapists, yeah. chiropractors, to put us all on the same yeah. spectrum, right? So, <clears throat> personal trainers shouldn't address pain. You, they, they just don't understand it. They don't have the diagnostic ability to tell when something is really serious, like we were talking about. <laughs> and although that might be relatively rare, if you screw up with that person who has something really, really serious and don't send them to the right referral and yeah. make things worse, that's on you. Yeah, um, That's important. Uh, there are different ways of addressing pain based on movement assessment. So although the this is very common with like low back pain and cervical pain, right, where there's nerve involvement, the intuitive thing is to want to stretch. The intuitive thing is to want to release. The intuitive thing is to want to put a massage gun on it. Because temporarily, that'll kind of like flood the nervous system with a bunch of stuff, maybe relax some spasming muscles, and you'll get the sensation of feeling better. But you also just put a tremendous amount of stress on a nerve that's already highly sensitized. And what every physical therapist who's treated low back pain will tell you is that's fool's gold because often those people will feel better for about 30 minutes, 60 minutes and then that night or the next day, they'll be completely lit up, worse than they were before, because of all the stress and damage you, you just did, because you didn't know how to do in a movement assessment that would tell you not to do that ahead of time. Got it. Right.
0: Well, and and isn't it true too that the 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 spasm and the tightness might be some, it's a protective mechanism to say don't mess around over here. And so if you right. kind of open up the mobility, but you don't have the stability to go along with it, that could be an issue, a big issue,
1: correct? Right. This, uh, so yeah, <clears throat> this is not, again, this is not a, a fix all, Yeah. but with the type of patient that I was just talking about, which is fairly common, right? Where stretching and or maybe release techniques actually makes them worse. What will usually work for them is stabilization exercise. But here's where the counterintuitive thing comes in. You'll do the stabilization exercise and they'll only feel a little better at the time, but they start making progress as opposed to the fool's gold of feels a lot better at the moment, but gets a lot worse. Got it. Right? And until you have some pretty significant skills and a much much deeper understanding of how that area of the body works. Mm. It's very hard to differentiate those things. Got it. You know, I would say if, if you were going to do, if you were going to lean towards anything with low back pain, I would stick to like low level quadrupeds and stabilization work and stay away from stretching and release work. I think if I was going to make a a blanket recommendation.
0: And we'll get uh, into that a little bit later too, on just some, some do's and don'ts. But so, so, to kind of change it up a little bit, but, but still similar is obviously, you know, your sittings, the new smoking and blah, 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 all this stuff. But, you know, sitting in posture, you know, especially in front of, you know, kids now growing up in front of the games a lot more, in front of the screen a lot more based on school or whatever. How do those things play in? And, and, and more specifically, I said maybe not how, but why do, do those things lead to, you know, a higher risk of, of low back pain or neck pain?
1: Yeah, so I've given this a lot of thought. And uh, again, we're going to go a little counterintuitive here. Um, I don't think it's sitting that's necessarily bad. I think what becomes bad is getting stuck in one posture. This is what becomes really, really problematic. And the reason why I say this is when you look at the compensation patterns that are developed, When you look at the impairments that are correlated with pain, and when I say impairments, I mean like a range of motion loss or a weakness in a particular or decrease in activity of a particular muscle or, you know, something identifiable that we can say, okay, the body is now working less well. When you look at those impairments, generally speaking, they're very predictable for a particular symptom cluster. So there are very predictable things that happen with low back pain, asymmetrical hip range of motion, loss of of, um, lumbar rotation, range of motion, uh, decreased activity of the gluteus medius gluteus maximus, decreased activity of the intrinsic core, right? So we have some of these common impairments. Here's the rub and why the sitting thing doesn't make sense, is when you look at those impairments for that particular symptom cluster, it's pretty much the same for desk jockeys, right? Me, right? Sitting behind a desk all day. It's the same for athletes. It's the same for manual labor. It's the same for people who stand all day, right? Remember, like people used to talk about, oh, I want my my soft mats because I stand behind, you know, a counter all day. And, you know, because you're a cashier because you, you know, work at Subway or whatever you happen to do, it's fine. Or you work at Amazon and you're, you're, moving around stuff. They all have the same compensation patterns. So the sitting thing by itself doesn't quite make sense. I think where we get stuck is when we get stuck in the same position for a really long time and we start adapting, our body literally starts adapting to that position. Mm. So in sitting, obviously, you know, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to keep me in this hip flex position, I'm just going to make hip flexed position more comfortable which is fine until you stand up. Um, I think, so you, right now I'm standing and I'm talking to you at my computer. The reason I can do this is because I have a standing desk. People are like, oh, standing desk. That's the way to be healthy. (laughs) Kind of. There's a a caveat here. I actually have a standing desk. I I got spent a little bit more money to get the one that goes up and down, Hmm. right? And has like the little electronic controls so i have a sitting height and i have a standing height the important thing about having a standing desk is not standing all day it is the fact that i can stand for an hour i can sit for a couple hours i can get back up and stand for a half an hour i can sit for a few minutes if my back starts bothering me i can stand for a couple hours like i'm going up and down right and it's comfortable for me to do that Um, and with that i never get stuck in one posture beautiful Beautiful, beautiful.
0: Well, so, you know, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, very common muscular imbalances that lead to low back pain, whether it's, you know, the, the quadratus, you more or QL or, or just the erectors or, you know, tight hip flexors, you know, again, generally speaking, can you, can you be can it can you kind of decipher through and give some knowledge around, you know, what happens there? Why? And, you know, is that, is that accurate? It's not
1: one muscle. That's the first thing. Like,
0: Oh, and I forgot about the big one, the TVA not working.
1: <laughs> yeah. Is the TVA working less in low back pain? Yes. But that's not the only thing going on. So one of the big evolutions of these predictive models of postural dysfunction, would start with Yanda, right? Mm-hmm. Upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, pronation distortion syndrome. And then hopefully, I can take a little credit and say that our predictive models of postural dysfunction are the most evolved, the most recent update of these. Beautiful. One of the giant leaps in logic that I think I've made was realizing that you actually have to account for all of the muscles, all of the joints, and how all of them are compensating because it is an integrated system. So when we talk about the QL, for example, you mentioned, well, the truth of the matter is, is the QL behaves very similarly to the psoas and multifida when you look at their behavior relative to postural dysfunction, which that group of muscles, right, behaves a little different than the erector spinae. And those muscles have adopted a different type of behavior than the external obliques and rectus abdominis, which is different than the transverse abdominis, diaphragm, pelvic floor, right? So you have these groups that are shifting. Now at the Brookbush Institute and I think NASM and um, Yonda before that, right? Yonda was phasic and tonic, Mm -hmm. but then we started using terms like, uh overactive underactive and then we brought in short and long now the truth of the matter is is we probably should be labeling these things in categories right based on a group of adaptive changes that happen to each one of these little pairings of muscles that i was talking about because they all kind of like adopt their own that that group has a certain type of behavior has a yeah. certain personality. Instead, what we end up doing to make it a little easier for practice is we go, well, the rectus abdominis is long and overactive. Now, technically that should be like a category four or something like that, right? Yeah. But I'll get into that in a future course and why that's important. But
0: but did you say long now, and long and overactive? overactive?
1: Yeah. Okay. So why is long and overactive as a label important? What are we actually trying to do? Well, we're trying to give ourselves as practitioners indicators of what we should do to that muscle, right? So that whether the muscle is long or short and whether the muscle is actually overactive or underactive doesn't actually matter as much as what is that implying, which is if it's long and overactive, if we know it's long, we're not going to stretch it. But if it's overactive, maybe we want to release it. If it's overactive, maybe we don't want to keep working it and isolating it in different exercises because that could increase the activity right? If something's short and overactive, then we know we need to release and lengthen it. That's how that muscle responds best. That's the interventions that that muscle responds best to on a therapeutic sort of thing or a corrective exercise sort of thing, right? So the complication all of this comes into is all of the muscles are involved in every compensation. It takes a, you want to Take your corrective exercise knowledge up a huge notch. Learn your anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) All of it. Yeah. Right. Like, can you name all of the hip flexors? Oh, I know my psoas. (laughs) Yeah. Nice start. Yeah. And that's all it is. Right? What about your rectus femoris? What about your TFL? What about your sartorius? What about your iliacus? What about the adductor, the anterior adductor muscles, right? Those are all also hip flexors. And if you don't know about those and your goal is to improve hip extension and all you try to do is affect the psoas somehow, um, and you leave the TFL behind, good luck. You're not necessarily going to get anywhere. Um, so yeah, it's a system. Yeah. You got to think about all of it all at once.
0: Well, and, and that kind of leads to the next question too. And and this could be a, a pretty deep conversation is, you know, how the foot, impacts because you know sometimes you go to chiropractors and you know you got low back pain and they'll t- they'll put you in an orthotic and, and i don't necessarily know if i want to go down that road because i could open a can of worms here or there but but how does that i mean obviously you just talked about look at all the muscles but then how does something like the foot impact back pain
1: so we just keep going down the the rabbit hole of an integrated system um, I can't tell you how many times I have addressed low back pain with ankle and foot dysfunction. Like that's super common. Actually, mm-hmm. that relationship is, is stronger than most people are giving credit for. And unfortunately we don't even have a lot of research because there just isn't research done to kind of make that correlation. There's some, there's some strong research There's actually a prospective study uh, that demonstrates that people with foot ankle dysfunction are more likely to have low back pain in the future. But anyway, um
0: well and and i think i want to also include not only low back pain but low back muscle tightness and how that could also you know impact because i think a lot of times you know prior to the pain or or whatnot people are saying i'm really stiff or they're trying to be go out and golf and they don't have the rotation and they keep trying to stretch their back and do certain things but the problem might be in the foot
1: right yeah so like i said it's an integrated system so You know, for example, we were talking a little bit, I I mentioned this real quickly. Uh, Asymmetry and hip rotation is highly correlated with low back. pain. Well, is hip rotation correlated with foot mechanics? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Mm -hmm. So inversion and eversion of the ankle during gait walking has a direct correlation with the amount of hip internal and external rotation that happens during gait. So if I have weird foot mechanics, every step I take is altering my hip internal and external rotation. And we know if that leads to adaptive changes in hip range of motion, which given enough time, it will body's wonderfully adapting to things long-term, right? And it ends up with a little asymmetry, just a little one, boom, chances of low back pain just went up a significant amount, right? So, I mean, you talked about golf. Golf is a perfect example where you can also take this to a very biomechanical place Mm -hmm. and go, okay, if you try to swing a golf club, most of your rotation should not be coming from lumbar rotation. Your lumbar spine is not exactly built to rotate much. However, your hips are, right? Your hips is where you should be getting a lot of that rotation from. So, again, if we have this foot-ankle dysfunction that's led to changes that have reduced, let's say, hip range of motion on one side, every time you get stuck in hip rotation, right? I know you guys can't see my hips, but just imagine my hips get stuck. Now, where am I going to turn? My spine, right? And that creates all this excessive torque on my spine every time I take a shot, right? That's... That's going to break things down eventually, right? It may not happen at first, but it will eventually. And just to back this whole thing up, you might be going, oh, well, I have to address the back pain. You do have to address the back pain by fixing the root cause of the problem, which some of you guys have only gone back as far as going, damn, I got to hit fix that hip rotation. Yes, you do. What caused the asymmetry and hip rotation to begin with? Oh, yeah. They were missing dorsiflexion or they pronated in the foot ankle complex on the right side. So if I fix the hip rotation, but I don't fix the compensation pattern at the foot ankle that was driving the adaptive changes in the hip, I'll fix the hip, which will make the low back come feel better. And what's going to happen? They're going to leave the clinic, and all of that's going to come back because the initial driver is still there. Got it. So maybe they get two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, two months of no back pain. Yay! And then boom, comes back. And maybe this time with a vengeance. Yep. Wow.
0: Fantastic. Well, you know, we talked a lot, uh, you know, of different mechanisms and different possibilities obviously in in what goes on with the muscles and the nerves and i'd love to dive into some you know some do's and don'ts so you know i don't like to call exercises necessarily bad but just what are the higher risk like you know what are exercises that you know people probably should stay away from if they're asymptomatic today but they've had low back pain you know in the past or a propensity
1: towards that i would say if you're not currently asymptomatic now is your chance to gently try new activities. But with that being said, if you have a history of low back pain, especially if that back pain has been debilitating in the past, right? So it is, when I say debilitating, I don't mean like permanently debilitating. I mean like it has changed your ability to work. It has changed your ability to function. You've had to take days off of work. Like that's debilitation, right? So if you've had debilitating back pain in the past, you need to try activities and realize that it's not right then that you are judging the activity by. You need to do an activity and see how you feel over at least the next 48 hours. If you then don't have pain, you can do it again and maybe ramp up the intensity a little bit. Yeah. But I would be careful, right? Like that's I think that 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 post window is where everybody just, they just mess up. Like, oh, I was, you know, like they had low back pain. I'm not saying spin is necessarily bad, but they'll have low back pain. Oh, I did spin. I felt great after spin. And then two days later, I was totally flared up. Okay. Did you try spin again? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really loosened me up. I felt and,
0: and, and what happens and too? a lot of weekend,
1: times? Crushed. Yeah. And, and, and I'm what like, ha- oh, good. Yeah. You, you get what I'm saying? Like they, yeah, they because bend. what happens
0: too, is they'll, they'll do the spin. They'll feel great. And then they'll, they'll bend over or they'll do something, sh- shut their car door. And then they'll blame it on that as the, yeah. you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, but not potentially something else, but, you know, getting into the, but like, if, if you think, I mean, I, I've, I've seen people, you know, kind of, they do V ups and kind of do the rotation with the medicine, but like, is there, specific exercises that you would say are, are definitely a bit more higher risk with people who've had back pain in the past?
1: Sure. Um, <laughs> man, there's going to people be some people who really don't like this answer. Number one thing I'm going to suggest people don't do if they have a chronic history of low back pain is yoga. That would be my number one. And why? Because yoga ends up being a lot of really intense neural stretching. And one of the problems that we get into with low back pain, especially chronic low back pain, and the type of low back pain that is much harder to treat, which is called something like a radiculopathy or sciatica, mm. you keep stretching and hitting those nerves, you are very likely to flare yourself up again. Not to mention that, that kind of what we were talking about before, where it's actually instability. Sometimes that becomes harder to treat at the lumbar spine. And yoga is obviously not geared towards strength. It's geared a lot more towards mobility. So you're kind of adding into that instability rather than adding into strength. I would say other things you want to stay away from strength training-wise. I don't know why Olympic lifts have gotten so popular, but like stay away from Olympic lifts. Um, unless you're an Olympic lifter, I mean, Olympic lifts just their utility is not great. Um Even for athletes, we see a lot of professional organizations moving away from Hmm. Olympic lifts because the risk is just too high. And there's other activities that now, again, if you like Olympic lifting, do Olympic lifting, Hmm. not taking away Olympic lifts from Olympic lifters. But if you're a basketball player, eh, probably not worth the risk to learn an Olympic lift. Like a box jump is going to be a lot more transferable to basketball anyway. Hmm. Um, bent over rows. I mean, that's a common one. People are like, Oh, but you gotta, you gotta work the back to, to learn how to strengthen the back. Yeah. Bent over rows are a little weird, right? Like, uh, you don't usually bend over at 90 degrees and then go up and down and stay in a bent over (laughs) position for like 75 seconds. So as a personal trainer, I generally stay away from them because I find that if you do them long enough, eventually you start having some low back pain. Hmm. Um, the crazy core exercises, like you're talking about, generally speaking, core exercise would be better than not core exercise, okay? which is why I don't put them at the top of the list, like yoga, Olympic lifting and bend over rows. But to your point, leg raises, like it's hip flexor work guys, it's not core work. And if you increase the activity of your hip flexors, reduce hip mobility, which is what usually happens with that. Again, that's linked to low back pain. So that's not stuff we want to do. And that would be things like v ups leg raises, um, hanging leg raises. We just see all sorts of variations of leg raises, mm-hmm. pikes. Uh, all that stuff is like, yeah, I'd probably stay away from that. My big core activities, the ones that we've gone back to and realized it's these activities with all of their progressions is quadrupeds.
0: And these are the ones that are good for you.
1: Yeah. And really good for everybody. Everybody, yeah. Like this is like the staples. These are the ones that I give to everybody, and I've kind of gone away from everything else because even with these four basic movement patterns, there's so many progressions and variations. You have yeah. plenty to. Work with.
0: Hey, real quick before we dive into that, I want to ask about one other thing. Uh Obviously, deadlift, uh, and then and then the hex bar deadlift, and you know.
1: I was going to get into my, I was going to put that on the things that you should be doing.
0: Okay. Okay. Perfect.
1: All right. (laughs) We'll get back to that. I'm not done with deadlifts. Yeah. (laughs) This is just, they're not even on my list of things people shouldn't be doing. They're they're not on the list at all. Right. So we said yoga, Olympic lifting. um, What else did we say? Oh, bent over rows. Um, We said the crazier. Maybe leg lifts and stuff like that Mm -hmm. are not a great idea. Mm -hmm. Although core activity is better than no core activity. Um, The core activities, I was going to say that we do. Yeah, let's get into. Yep. is quadrupeds and all the variations. And we have a ton of variations. And you've seen some of those where we've come up with like quadruped challenges that are almost impossible. But they're fun. You just do them for fun. Yeah. Planks as a progression from quadrupeds. Um, Again, you have to be very careful with form on planks but they can be very beneficial bridges or hip thrusts as they're sometimes called, depending on whether you're doing them float or not. I don't know. Um, Anyway, bridges and all of their variations. And then a little bit more advanced pattern is the chop pattern. The only reason I say it's more advanced is because it does take more coordination. It seems it's a little harder to teach, but those four uh, core training There are staples. If you go to our core progression courses at the Brookbush Institute, like that's all you see. We don't have other options. And we've actually never had any complaints either. And I think it's because if you get into the courses, you'll realize there's a lot of ways to like make those a lot harder, make them really challenging. And like, they're good. And they generally don't exacerbate symptoms either, which that's the challenge too with low back patients. You have that chronic low back patient. You have to like be careful not to like flare them up again Mm. got it
0: so let's get into deadlift then
1: Mm. look deadlifting is a fundamental movement pattern you know unlike bent over rows where i said bent over rows are a little weird because you like bend over to 90 degrees you're like doing this holding that position for a really long time deadlifts are like picking up something off the floor Mm. um now does that mean you just get to do whatever you want with a low back patient and be like, yeah, just deadlift, go for it, <laughs> yeah. PR, baby. Uh, no, that is not <laughs> that is not a great idea. But I think getting somebody to be able to do some deadlifts again, who has had a history of low back pain, is actually pretty important. Uh, but we do have some tricks that we use at the Brook Bush Institute. You've probably seen that video where we use the band around the hips to create an anterior to posterior pole. Mm-hmm. So that as somebody lifts in a deadlift, they learn to lift by thrusting their hips forward and using their glutes rather than pulling up, and right? Rather than lifting up from their low back, that's not a good idea. So we'll start with that band. But to give you guys, you know, a little bit of a story here, um, one of my closest friends, a guy who's like a brother to me, right? He's a basketball player. I'm a basketball player. We work out together. He's been my training partner for almost 20 years. Um, he had a double microdiscectomy. All right, so I want you guys to think about that. He had a part of his disc cut out. And he was having the crazy symptoms that I was talking about before,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like he was like losing sensation to part of his legs, extreme neurogenic pain in his saddle area. If you guys don't know what your saddle area is, that would be all of your area that touches your saddle, <laughs> uh, the saddle of the horse, <laughs> Right, so. Not comfortable, not comfortable. He was starting to have motor loss the whole night. Had to go in for surgery. Two weeks after the surgery, he sneezes, ruptures the disc again, has to go in for a second. Oh, man. Right? This is a basketball player. This guy played college ball. So it took us a while, right? When this happened, I happened to be going through school and we didn't have a lot of time. And even while I was in school, I wasn't working out that much. So after I get out of school, we decide we're going to go back to training, and try to get back into league play. And we're a little older at this point. I can tell you one of the most important things that we did in our progression to get back in shape was to get him to be able to do, in particular, single leg deadlifts again. Because you think about basketball. It's like, if you can't deadlift, you can't play basketball. Because every time he goes to reach for a ball, every time he goes for a low cross, Right. That's a deadlift at high velocity. Yep. Right. And what is he doing now? <sighs> right. People are like, oh, well, yeah, but you keep the weight low. Look, we were doing single leg deadlifts, right. With a posterior pole with the green, the thick green band. Yep. I don't want to it, I understand. But the thick green, like a uh, pull-up bands, you know, Yep. with 80, 90, hundred pounds in each hand, single leg, right. Four reps for high reps. Now we're doing things like reverse lunges with wobbly weight with 155 pounds. Wow. Right. Like you have to work up to these things, especially if you're going to be competitive. I mean, both of us yesterday, we were playing. Um, the guy I ended up guarding was 20, 30 pounds, I'm six foot three, 200 pounds. This guy was six foot seven, 230. The guy he was guarding was probably six two, 220. Like you run into these big bodies. Like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. What, you're just going to not deadlift, not prepare? So, deadlifts are a fundamental movement pattern. I think they're important. I think you can see the transference, transference throughout uh, multiple sports, and we can come up with multiple examples of a deadlift like activity in sport. Yeah. Here's what I would warn though powerlifting and strength coaches. I'm talking to you. If you think powerlifting, Is the ideal model for a deadlift you are dead wrong and i need to say that that clearly because people have come to this ridiculous assumption that because powerlifters can deadlift the most weight that is how everybody should be deadlifting despite the fact that some of these deadlift techniques have absolutely nothing to do with functional activities like running or jumping you don't jump with your feet turned out 45 degrees and wide while you hold the bar like this, right? (laughs) You don't get to do and then bend over when you're playing basketball before you do a deadlift. Start, like this this is ridiculous. What do we need? We need people to be able to do a deadlift with their feet parallel underneath their hips, bending their knees, no straight leg stuff. Right, bending their knees just like they would run or just like they would reach in an actual game. Like you have to take things back to function and what sports actually play. And if I can only lift so much weight with this form I'm talking about, I didn't lose anything because I could lift a hundred more pounds with my feet pointed out. I'm not going into a powerlifting competition. I am getting on the basketball court. I need to All train right. for that. So are you
0: are you recommending a lot more single leg, you know, versus Maybe trad like traditional style deadlifts?
1: I think traditional style deadlifts are great. I think we just have to define what a traditional deadlift is. I grew up learning a traditional deadlift is feet parallel, feet underneath hips, you bend the knees, the weight does not get to touch the floor between reps. This is another thing. The amortization phase that that uh transition. turn between eccentric and concentric, right? The transition phase is the most important phase for power development. It is the most likely phase where somebody is to get injured and you take that out of the movement when the weight touches the floor. I am not impressed by these people who can drop deadlifts that are really heavy. I'm impressed by the person who can do a couple reps, three reps in a row with really heavy weight without touching the floor because they're getting around that really difficult amortization phase at that low. That's impressive. Love it. It's kind of like the the... Dropping the weights on the floor is the deadlift equivalent of you like you see those guys who box jump, but all they really did was lift their knees really high. Yeah. They didn't actually get high, yeah. they just kind of put their feet up on a yeah. box. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, that's like funny. that's yeah, touching the floor is the deadlift equivalent of hip hike box jump. Right? Like you gotta <laughs> got it um anyway yeah like we never touched the weights on the floor if the weight them on the floor the the sets over so got it got it got um it. yeah so conventional deadlifts are great i think more single leg deadlifts would be great mm-hmm. right i think when you look at that movement pattern being able to bend over pick something up on one leg you do that a lot more than you think you do yep and it's a great stability exercise and you should do it with more weight that's the other thing that people just they they, they mess up that whole strength endurance thing they go our stability endurance thing. I'm like, oh, that means lightweight. No, 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 no. It means lighter weight. My weights never get light. I didn't like walk over to. Oh, we're doing single leg deadlifts today. Hey, Jay, who's my training partner? Yeah. Here's a 20 pound weight, <laughs> right? Because we were deadlifting 200, 300, whatever pounds, and now I'm gonna hand him a 20. When do we ever run into anything on the basketball court that's 20 pounds? Right. Like I've never played against a 20 pound defender. I hate to tell you guys this. Um, it's never happened. So, but like, if you can do 12 reps with seventies, you should be doing seventies
0: yeah.
1: and I've seen guys do single leg deadlifts with heavier weights. It's impressive. It's great. Got it.
0: Well, is there anything else that you can add? I know we're, we're about up with uh, for time here. You know, one thing that came in and I don't know if you can cover this or we covered at another date of just, what bracing should be happening and how to do that properly when, when you're bending over. And you know, if that's too much of a big topic to cover in a couple of minutes, then uh, I'd rather save it.
1: Let's talk about this as a progression. If you have to brace when you bend over, that's called guarding and you're in trouble, right? You should not have to brace, which is contracting all of your, your abdominal muscles or brace and do the Valsalva maneuver. Right? Right when you're just bending over to pick something up. At that point, when you're doing that, you're in trouble and you need to go see a PT. You shouldn't be teaching that to people. You shouldn't be doing that, right? Like this is, bracing is a big deal, right? Now, what we can train is activation of the transverse abdominis because that is a muscle that has a propensity to get underactive, very much like the glutes, right? So drawing in, just like I am right now, notice I can talk, I can breathe, It's just a light contraction that of drawing in, right? Pulling my my ab area away from my waistband a little bit. That's a good general cue, right? It's light, it helps create some balance in our recruitment patterns. That's all we want. Now, as weights get heavier, that's when you might have to switch from, okay, drawing in isn't enough anymore. Now I'm gonna need to brace. Got it. Up, I'm getting into my one to three rep max. Maybe I have to brace and do the Valsava move. It's not that bracing is bad. It's when the bracing we need for really heavy loads starts happening at really light loads. Ah, I got it. That now all of a sudden we go, oh, that's not bracing anymore. That's guarding. Like you're guarding because you don't want to, you know, like we were talking about, like you have an HMP, facet, nerve, something or else going on in there that we can't differentiate. And now all of a sudden your body's going, I'm going to lock that up because if that moves, that's going to hurt, right? That's, that's where we get the rub. Perfect. And,
0: and with the, the pull in maneuver, cause some people use, or, you know, pull your belly button in towards your spine, which, you know, that cue, I always hated because it, it literally tells the person, if you're not helping them understand to try to pull that thing in as far as you possibly can, which is on the other end of the spectrum, isn't good either. Correct.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting because this all comes down to a. If you guys want to get into the history of this, this all comes down to a debate between the Richardson Hodges and Hyatt's nice. crew, mm-hmm. right? So this is the abdominal drawing in maneuver. This is the intrinsic stabilization subsystem. This is the transverse abdominus re- research, right? Which is fantastic research. And then this guy named Miguel, right? Who's also done wonderful low back research, but his narrative, right? The... His, his suggested practical applications that he's implying from his data is very different than these guys. Yeah. What is missing here is new ones. So, which is where, what I'm telling you guys right now, right? Not like it. the McGill, the McGill uh, tightening everything up works really well when you're talking about really heavy loads, but it probably shouldn't, you shouldn't need it when you're doing your daily activity. Love that. And if you look at the the Richardson, Hodges and hind stuff, they use the term, just so you guys know, if you want to look this up, the correct term is abdominal drawing in maneuver, A-D-I-M, right? So if you look up drawing in, if you look up pulling in, you might not find the research. Look up mm-hmm. abdominal drawing in maneuver, right? The authors are Richardson, Hodges, and Hides. Mm-hmm. and they talk about a light contraction.
0: And isn't it also too, and isn't it also, because uh, I have the their first edition book from, from a while back, it's also a lot of that stuff is to be, it was to be done to re-educate the transverse abdominus and was mainly done on floor, on the floor, whether it's quadruped or on your back. It wasn't necessarily something that, you know, people exasperated when they're on a spin bike, draw your belly button in towards your spine or, you know, when you're, you're doing pretty much everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, realize that Richardson, Hodges and Hines, they were talking about low back pain patients Yes, and, you know, fitness trainers, I'm sorry. You know, you guys don't know what low back pain is, right? You may think you have had low back pain, but until you've been a physical therapist a while and see what really irritable back pain looks like, the back pain that like anything you do, that is one step too far flares them up for a really long time, right? That's where that hodges and hides like dead bug and being on your back and just working on maintaining pressures with the blood pressure cuff under your back, you've seen that stuff, right? That all comes from like, okay, we're just trying to re-educate the TVA and give some somebody something to try to get out of this irritable phase where little increases in intensity can cause really big flare-ups. Yeah. Right. We want to get to the point where like we have a little breathing room and we can try some stuff to get them to the, the strengthening phase. Love it. Now, like I said, I don't think abdominal drawing in in general is a bad move if we're talking about a light drawing in rather than let your belly hang out, like yeah. it's just a form cue,
0: yeah,
1: and it's a light contraction, it's not like a big deal. But to your point, this idea that everybody should be doing dead bugs on the floor, despite how healthy they are, um, or that we should be like super focused intense on this whole abdominal drawing in maneuver while we're doing like a spin class. Yeah, that's taking it too far. I mean, we can say the same thing. The other thing that drives me nuts is the pelvic floor stuff. Like, oh, contract your pelvic floor. Do not contract your pelvic floor. If you are doing the drawing and maneuver, your pelvic floor is already contracted. And if you cue somebody to do kegels, chances are you're more likely to increase overactivity than you are to fix anything. So. wow. Not to mention, how are you going to
0: check that? Like, i was really curious. Like, are you going to check that they're doing it? Because uh, that's a problem. Yeah, big problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I, sure I, you yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough, man. And and this was a great, great episode. And you know, there there's so much we can go down the rabbit hole on this. And you know, I, I look forward to having this series with you on you know other areas and you know different different we'll ways. So, man,
1: a weekly like like sit down. I mean, I don't drink, so we can't do like, you know, pub talks or something I'm good. Like I'm all about coffee. I mean, yeah, we can, me too. We can do, do Jason and Brett at the cafe.
0: I love it. We'll, we'll do that on our own. <laughs>
1: all right, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I got to get out to New York too. Um, but uh, i can't thank you again uh so I, I appreciate it and uh look forward to many more and, and best of luck with you and, and everybody out there too i mean brent stuff is not only some of the best stuff that's out there but it's the most affordable stuff out there too and and in and, and its means to to get it so i highly recommend we'll put it in the show notes the brent book bush institute and the, the various courses that they have uh to try and drive there too as well so uh, thanks again man and i appreciate what you're doing for the industry
1: Try my the best man you know i love my colleagues we